Hello, everyone. Welcome to Typhoon Talks, brought to you by Typhoon Consulting, a boutique management consultancy headquartered in Hong Kong. My name is Chen Yang, and I'm a consultant here with the firm. And I'm Annie Tsang, an analyst with the firm. Waves of digital disruption continue to hit traditional industries as advancements in technology become increasingly accessible. PropTech, as part of a wider digital transformation, is shaking up the property industry and reshaping the way real estate is built, managed, transacted, and recorded. Our guest today is Colin Borger, CEO of Property Passport, a Shanghai-based startup and global marketplace for real estate investors, covering over 40 major markets around the world. Welcome, Colin. Thanks for having me. All right, so to start off, uh, I want to know a bit about Property Passbook and your background. So you've had a lot of work experience with real estate services and private equity firms. What was the moment that you decided to leave an established real estate company and start your own business and in Shanghai as well? Sure. So I was uh, initially attracted to China uh, for the uh, you know market potential. This was back in 2007. And um, I was always really... Although I worked in property and had done a number of startups in the property sector, I was always really interested and passionate about uh, consumer financial services. And you know, while I was the head of research at Colliers in Shanghai, um, you know, I saw this little business line that, that that they were working on, which was international marketing of new construction residential. And um, it really kind of piqued my interest. It connected a lot of my um, connected a lot of the pieces to the puzzle, you know, the consumer financial services piece, right. the, um, the uh, you know, a very, a very fragmented industry piece, and, and, and an area that, that looked like it could be provided in a lot um, better way to consumers. And so that's kind of how that all came together. Cool. And so with Property Passbook itself, so Chen introduced it as a global marketplace for real new real estate finance. Can you talk a bit about what Property Passbook is and what's so innovative about it in terms of there's a number of processes that it kind of streamlines like property sourcing, inspection, document compliance, et cetera, et cetera. So as a CEO, could you speak a little bit about what the innovation is behind Property Passbook? Sure. So obviously this is a, this remains a very fragmented industry. I think in a market like uh, Hong Kong where you're based, there's probably about 50 events every weekend by 50 different people uh, marketing. Um, product that would fall into the category. Um, the two things that we're focused on are one, uh, our algorithm, which helps I identify what are the most investable cities, the most investable products, the most investable units, and providing that feedback for our consumers. So, you know, to date, we've outperformed uh, the local market index by about 6% in the, in the market where we sell. So, you know, if you buy in Melbourne, uh, if you bought a unit from us, you would have been ahead by about 6% on an annualized basis. Um, and, and yes, we're in an increasing market at the moment, but this is this is a relative comparison. So that's the first thing that we're doing, um, is creating the, the algorithm for, for making better investments. And then the other half of it is just streamlining the post-sales experience. I think a, a lot of people, they like property, they'd like to put more money into the asset class. It just takes a lot of work and people are busy, people have white collar jobs, and you know, people don't want a part-time job that, that requires them to be paying bills in Thailand or London or Vancouver uh, when, when in their free time they'd rather be watching you know, Netflix or, or, or whatever. Um, so those are the two main things that we're going after. Uh, algorithm to make better investments, not dissimilar from kind of some of the robo-advisor ideas, 
And then secondly, streamlining the ownership process into a single uh, platform. Right. So your platform seems to be replacing many of the primary tasks of a traditional realtor. However, these agents used to be the path to the buyers as well as the owners of the transactions. So how challenging do you find it is to change the current transaction landscape or the way realtors and their clients do business? Um, I mean, we have real estate agents that work for us as well. Um, we still think that uh, salespeople and customer service is a big part of the process. I would say, though, that we also see that many of the way those people are providing services are not always in the client's best interest. Yeah. So in many ways, in many ways, our technology is enabling and empowering those people to do their jobs better. So, you know, I don't really think we're, we're really disrupting the agent's role. I think we'd probably be more disrupting the companies they work for. I think we, we still plan on not having salespeople uh, working for our business. Um, but we think that many of the companies where those salespeople work now, um, we, we think it's unlikely that they're going to still be uh, working in this industry uh, in the future. Because most, by the way, most of the companies that do this, this is a small business line for them. And because it's a small business line, they just don't kind of, I think, pay the appropriate attention uh, that it deserves. Yeah. So do you think in, say, five to ten years, there's still a place for agents? You know, very much so. I mean, I think, you know, that that role might look a little bit different in the future. I think it might be more of a, you know, not dissimilar from, I think, the, the wealth management type of position. But it's still a complicated process. People still want to talk to people that they trust. Um, having said that, I think people also still demand that, like most of the things we consume nowadays, that everything is online, everything is digitized, um, and and I think they, 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 they need both halves of that equation in order to, to create the best possible customer experience. Um, but yeah, the role of the agent will change at that point. Um, you know, it'll be more of a customer service, more of a concierge type of role. I think less of, it'll look a little bit different than it does today. Yeah, so, I mean, from a broader perspective, I guess it seems like most startups fall kind of into two categories. Either, uh, like you, they, they kind of support existing players through their tools and services. So, like you said, you're supporting the agents and kind of trying to remove the inefficiencies of the companies. Um, but they're also, the second category of startups, I would say, are the ones that really challenge and they want to completely remove, you know, the intermediaries. Um, but from your experience working in the real estate industry specifically, what are the types of real estate professionals that you think are facing the biggest cha challenges? And uh, I know you mentioned a bit about how their role will change. So what kind of skills do you think will be required for these future real estate professionals? Um, well, as far as people who work in the industry, I mean, obviously real estate is, has a lot of different segments. Um, and I think certain segments uh, are going to have more pressure than others. I think some of the safest jobs, to be quite honest, are the salespeople. Really? Yeah, I would say, you know, maybe in certain verticals in real estate, less so. I mean, there's certain stuff in real estate that's probably a little bit more of a commodity. Right. So specifically, I think, like, small commercial real estate, that's a bit of a commodity. But I think larger commercial real estate it won't look too much too different in 10 years. I think when it comes to residential, uh, which is you know, where we operate, right. you know, it'll, it'll just be a, it'll be a little bit of a different role. I think um, the, the, the importance of platforms will, will, will be a little bit more important, but um, some of those people will, they won't be as disruptive as you think. I think as, you know, the economy evolves and as things get automized, I mean, 
automated, there's going to be a lot more people, I think, working in, in customer service type of roles. And I think people are going to expect that and get used to it. Yeah, it sounds a lot more like a relationship building type of... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I do think for, for our sector anyways, like people who work at our, at our company, um, you know, generally speaking, um, I think you're going to see a lot more people attracted to the industry that maybe weren't attracted to it before. I think uh, as the industry, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, professionalizes, um, you're going to see a lot more people uh, in the industry who... And like it's different in different markets, like in certain markets, you know, real estate uh, professionals are, you know, more educated than in other markets. So we, we operate in Shanghai, where if you go anywhere in, in mainland China, um, the people who, who do real estate are, you know, fairly, um, it's a fairly entry level type of position. Where in other markets, the people who are very successful at it are very seasoned and mature. But I think in the future, it's going to be more of the seasoned, mature type of sector where those people will continue to do well, but probably be a little bit more challenging, I think, to to enter the industry with, with no experience. Now, I kind of want to take a broader view of the prop tech space generally. So when I was doing research, I found that the funding for prop tech has really grown, especially in the last five years. And according to a report by JLL, there are about 180 startups in Asia Pacific that received 4.8 billion USD in investments, which is, it's a really large amount for such a small number of startups and PropTech as a space is growing super rapidly. What do you think are the key drivers of this new wave of PropTech startups? I would probably just qualify this numbers. I think a lot of that funding goes to co-working space type of startups. Oh, um, okay, interesting. Which is, which, which generally gets included in those numbers. And, mm. and that's quite a bit of a different business in the sense that it's, you know, you could compare it to the hotel business almost. Um, you know, there's a lot of working capital uh, considerations there. Right. Um, and so so some of those numbers get skewed. And there's always the question of what is prop tech and what isn't prop tech. Um, I think when people talk about the, the sector, you know, is, is co-working, uh, is, is that prop tech? Is, um, you know, what's the blurring line between construction technology and, and property technology? Um, so what would you define uh, as prop tech specifically? Because when I was reading about it, it seemed like a really broad term, I agree. Like they kind of group anything related to literally property into prop tech. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think, to, to be honest, I think that that's just what it's going to be. I think it's, it's anything that's related to, to the built world. And so, of course, certain certain sectors of, of that are obviously just very different. I mean, setting up a co-working space, you know, is, that could have been done 15 years ago. I mean, Regis has existed for a long time, and, you know, WeWork is, you know, basically an improvement of the Regis business model with more uh, attractive economics to, to the owners in, in the sense that they're renting less, less desirable space most of the time. Right. And so there's not a lot, like software is a very minor part of that, whereas, like, companies like us and companies and some other companies, um, you know, we probably look more like traditional technology businesses, at least for how important the software aspect is to the entire uh, business. Let's talk a bit about China market. A lot of people say that China has the world's most closed business ecosystem. In other words, whatever you build for China market or build in China market, it's very hard to take this beyond the border. Do you share the same view? You know, I, I don't share that view. I mean, on the one hand, I think it's very difficult for some of the Chinese companies to do that. Um, but I do think it's easier to start a business in China and to take it out of China if that's a if China's a market that's going to be important to your business. What do you think is difficult for Chinese companies to go beyond the border? They have a real hard time, I think, internationalizing their teams. 
Um, you know, you even look at companies like Alibaba and Tencent, and you know they've made some efforts to internationalize their businesses. Um, but you know, if you're going to go to a market like Indonesia, you're going to have to be able to um, you know hire and integrate people that aren't uh, ethnically Chinese. Mm-hmm. And I, I still think that that's a real. I've yet to see a Chinese company be able to do that. The ones that have expanded outside of China, they're often still, you know, those those, those offices are still 80 to 90 percent ethnically Chinese. That's fine. I mean, it's fine if it's a beauty business and, and whatever. But like, it's 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 you're going to have limited success if you're not able to attract a more diverse uh, set of people if you're going to to countries that are not uh, majority ethnic Chinese countries. Yeah. So what is the key to success in China market? Well, I mean, China is obviously a very competitive place. I think as a foreigner and with a foreign business here, you know, even for foreign organizations coming to China, you gotta you gotta know what your your competitive advantages here and how that how you're going to compete with the you know either existing competitors or, or inevitable competitors that are going to arise. You know, China is, is a great great uh, has a great entrepreneurial culture. People here want to start businesses, and if you find a way to make money, someone else is going to try to copy it. And so you you've got to figure out what what you're going to do that's going to make you special, and and you know how you're going to develop your moat, for lack of a better word. Um, and and I think a lot of people they forget that you're going to need to make to have some type of competitive advantage here. And so just being cross border is not a competitive advantage. I mean, people here speak English as well. But the, you know there's there's certain things that I think foreign companies do uh, quite a bit better, which you know specifically with regards to. You know, building out teams, building out larger organizations. Um, you know, working with diverse people. Um, these are things that, like I said, I think, you no, know, in our space specifically, I think it's something that, when I look at competitive companies that are, that arise, I just don't understand how they're going to to kind of grow their 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 employee base outside of China in any meaningful way. So a lot of the companies here just seem to really struggle with that. Right. So in your Shanghai office, do you hire a lot of local talents, or do you hire more foreign graduates? You know, our preference is is to find highways, uh, uh, so so Chinese okay. people who've studied overseas and have come back to China. Yeah. Um, so we're about fifty fifty. Um, having said that, you know, there's a lot of in a city like Shanghai anyway. There's a lot of qualified people, um, and so we we try to find the best people for the job. Um, and you know, and we're not a China-only business uh, in a sense. I mean, we are. We both have a patent office in Bangkok, and, and you know, we're always open to to talking to people that that are, you know are passionate about our sector and want to work for a company that they believe in. But but operating in mainland China, yeah, you you do need to have a, a strong Chinese team. Um, but I do think sometimes um, you probably need to keep. It, it, this goes for startups anywhere. You need to have an open mind to. To how you sequence your hires, like we have, we have about 20 people working in our company, and when you have 20, when you're a 20-person organization, you need people that have, you know, general skill sets because people might be working on multiple types of tasks, mm-hmm. and and you need to find talent wherever you can find talent that that meets your budget. Yeah. So I mean, another major difficulty that I would think would arise in China is regulations. As a foreign business, have you what kind of challenges have you faced dealing with? You know, either local regulations or just regulators in general. I mean, we follow、uh, we follow all local regulations. 
you know, there's we're we're in a space where there's where there's a lot of people who I think uh, who operate more in the gray zone, and right. it's something that we've always, we've always been adamant about not doing. And we've kind of developed a strategy that allows us to follow follow the the, the, the laws here to to the letter. And you know, and, you know, not to get into specifics too much on that, but but the reality is, like, I I'm always surprised with what I see in mainland China. That some people uh, that they take they take risks that I probably wouldn't feel comfortable taking. It's, it's it's really it's really up to them. I mean, a lot of Chinese people do that as well. I mean, I think one of the things foreign businesses often struggle with is that they're they're both trying to follow the the letter of the law to the letter, but their competitors are ignoring a lot of those rules. And because their their local competitors ignore those rules, they gain market share. And so I mean, it's obviously very different in different sectors, and different sectors are more sensitive than others. But I think it's it's important that you you're aware of the risks uh, involved, and ideally you can figure out a strategy that allows you to to operate uh, within within the, the the confines of the laws here. So as a foreigner, how do you build up the relations with local governors or real estate professionals? With local with the local government, you know, it's not like Shanghai is a pretty international place. I mean, it's not. Hong Kong or Singapore, but I mean the local government here is very pro-business, and you know your 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 interactions with them are probably not that different from your interactions in, in any place in the world. And then with the local real estate organizations, I mean we we talk to a lot of the different people here, but it's still like it's a very fragmented industry, and it, it's not like other uh, markets where there are these very strong associations. I, in China, it's 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 a fairly fragmented industry. Put it put it mildly. Um, you don't have centralized listing kind of databases and whatnot, and so there's there's just a lot of different businesses kind of doing their own thing. It's it's fairly laissez-faire. Cool. Well, uh, that's all the time that we have for today. But to wrap up the episode, would you mind giving our listeners three key takeaways? Sure. I think one of the first things、uh, with regards to just prop tech in general, and we're starting to see this.、Uh, I think in a lot of industries is for so long. I think everybody was looking for the magical software business that you know was that looked like Microsoft or Google, and it was very high margin. I think in general, and it's not just this industry; I think it's in a lot of different industries. We're moving into a world that's going to be dominated by chat, where there's a lot more one-to-one relationship building, and I think the way people approach technology and customer engagement is is, is going to be. Very different. So that's probably one takeaway. The second takeaway is, you know, to, to people who are who are looking to start a business in China, start a business anywhere、uh, for that matter. I mean, I, I've, I've set up businesses in, in North America as well. You know, it's it's obviously very challenging. I don't think it's getting any easier. And you know, I I, I always suggest people that they probably go work at a startup before they maybe do it themselves. As ideally, a startup in a vertical where they think they want to maybe do their own startup in, so that they kind of get a sense of both the startup lifestyle and、uh, and just how much work it is and how committed you have to be to an idea. Because I mean, I consistently see, you know, whether it's in mainland China or anywhere,、um, the companies that generally make it are companies where the the founders were committed for years and years and years,、um, and they really became deep market experts. Um, and we're really good product managers. I think a lot, a lot of people, so even like China specific, you're you're becoming a, a, a an industry vertical, but you're also becoming a country vertical expert. It just takes time, and this stuff doesn't happen overnight. I think uh, uh, the final 
final thing that I would I would suggest is that you know if this is an if this is an asset class uh, that you're you're interested in learning more and you and you want to to get some advice, please reach out to us. Uh, we're happy to talk to different stakeholders. Uh, in the industry on, you know, how we think things are going to evolve and happy to, to talk to people that are, uh, that have an interest in the sector. That's great. Thank you very much, Colin, for joining us today. That concludes today's episode of Typhoon Talks. Follow us on Facebook, iTunes, and SoundCloud at Typhoon Talks for more podcast episodes. Also, please visit our website at www.typhoonconsulting.com for more industry points of view. We hope you will join us again next time.